Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, March the 15th, 2023. Um, looking at the news, if you want to avoid the bad news of a, an imminent banking collapse, uh, lots of incredible news of the new version of chat gpt chat gpt has arrived uh, according to the washington post it will blow chat gpt the third version the original version out of the water which already blew us or most people away uh, yesterday as well google came out with their own version of chat gpt and, and what it would look like in gmail and google docs according to the washington post this is a a real revolution. The Washington Post said that um, uh, ChatGPT now brings wondrous use cases and om ominous dark sides. I want to talk more about the wonder of ChatGPT today, not so much ChatGPT, but the idea of wondrousness, um, inspiring a feeling of wonder or, or delight, marvelous, wonderful. Uh, and we are dealing with a wonderful new book, The Power of Wonder by Monica C. Parker. It's already uh, a Washington, uh, a Wall, not Washington, Wall Street Journal bestseller, and he came out a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Monica C. Parker is joining us from New York City. Monica, welcome. Um, I don't know if you've been following this chat GPT stuff, uh, machines that can essentially talk and think. Uh, is it an example of the power of wonder, do you think? Well, I guess it depends on how uh, one observes it, because, of course, wonder is how we embody the experience. So for those that maybe uh, enjoy cognitive wonder bringers and, and it's the sort of thing that technology excites them and um, makes them feel a sense of awe, then it certainly can be. I, I find it more curious, but I will tell you that my um, my big brother, as a joke to me, said that he, well, it may be true, used ChatGPT to write a review about my book, just because that's how big brothers are. So um, it, the, the review came out all right, so, so we'll take it. What then uh, gets you going, Monica? What makes you wondrous? Yeah, so I tend to like cognitive wonder bringers. What we find is um, wonder bringers tend to sort of fall into um, three what, general categories. Or is that a is that a food a wonder burger? A Wonder Burger. There you go. I think maybe a little different than that. Um, uh, I, especially if perhaps you're vegan, it wouldn't be so wondrous. I'm not. I do like the meat. Um, but uh, I, I would say you can have natural Wonder Burgers. Most people find some wonder in nature. That's part of our sort of primal reaction to an environment. Um, it goes back to uh, evolutionary, just how we um, how we observe the environment that we're in. And Wonder Bringers can be social as well. And so other people like watching the first steps of your child or maybe seeing a, um, a particularly charismatic speaker can bring us wonder. Um, and then there's cognitive. And that's sort of the ideas of like thinking about a folded universe or um, some particularly thorny uh, philosophical problem. And that's those are the sorts of things that get my brain going. I prefer sort of um, cognitive or, or nerdy Wonder Bringers. Um, but I also do love... Um, 
love nature. I love being by the seafront. Um, and, uh, and, and people, the right environment, not all people, I don't like all people, um, but the right people certainly uh, can bring me a sense of wonder as well. Wonder, of course, is, I don't know whether you would call it a metaphysical or a philosophical or an aesthetic emotion. Um, we've talked about words uh, a lot in this show, actually, in recent shows. Can wonder be put into words? I mean, you can look it up, of course. You can go to your Merriam-Webster dictionary, look up wonder. You can uh, go to uh, the Cambridge Online Dictionary. But what is the relationship between wonder and words? Yeah. So wonder by its nature, it's sort of strange. It's a bit of a shapeshifter, isn't it? So um, we have wonder as the verb, which is to wonder, which is curiosity. That's part of the wonder cycle, as I describe it. And then we have wonder as a noun, which is a wonder. Um, that might be the outcome of, uh, of something or something that gives us a sense of awe. And my goal with the book was to try to link those into a, a singular wonder experience, a singular emotional experience that we can see as an arc. Um, and I also describe it sort of as a cycle that we it starts with openness to experience, moves through to curiosity, then to absorption, where we pare back all the chaos that we experience in the world. And then if we're lucky, we're sort of rewarded with the awe moment. And every time we experience that, we're more likely to experience the next step and the next step. But there's no question that a lot of elements of wonder are ineffable, meaning they define language. And yet, being ineffable just because they defy language doesn't mean that we haven't all experienced it. It is very much universal. Um, and it is an experience that people, as soon as you start to describe it, go, oh, yeah, I know what that is. But maybe I don't always have the language to um, to explain it. Is there a contradiction in wonder in the sense, uh, you know, your side of the, the, um, the subtitle of your book is the extraordinary emotion that will change the way you live, learn, and lead. I guess it could be love as well. You're promising something from one day. I, I, I guess you're trying to bottle it and offering it to people to improve the quality of their lives. But is that, in an odd way, a contradiction? Once wonder is bottled, defined, promised as a way of, of enriching your life, it loses its wonder? Well, for starters, I really didn't set out to write a self-help book. Um, this book is, I, I want people to see the balance between the science and the soul. Really, I wanted to share people the very concrete ways that wonder can benefit us. And this is just pure science. Um, the reality is the data is irrefutable around um, the benefits that each of the elements can offer us. I have to jump um, in here, Monica. Whenever yeah. a guest talks about the data shows, that always suggests to me that they're not particularly convinced or perhaps convincing what do you mean the data shows sure i mean there is um we can start with uh just uh, one of the elements that i thought was quite surprising was the physiological benefits of of wonder what we can see is when people experience wonder they um have lower uh stress hormones i mean these are things that are very measurable um if you if you find psychology to be a little bit um too squishy. We can just look at the fact that we can measure um, clinically our pro-inflammatory cytokines as well, which are the inflammation markers associated with things like 
um, Alzheimer's, uh, heart disease, diabetes, that these also drop when we experience wonder. And so there are physiological and psychological reactions that our bodies have to wonder. And it doesn't have to be mystical if that's not your bag, you know, if that's not your jam. It really can just be um, uh, scientific. It could be how our bodies simply react to these experiences, probably because from an evolutionary point of view, um, it offered certain benefits. Um, wonder can help us connect the dots. Um, they help us see um, in a more holistic way. And so likely from an evolutionary point of view, it developed because perhaps if we stood out on a great vista, um, it allowed us to gather lots of information. Um, it probably helped us determine pecking order in, um, in our communities and our societies very early on that if someone was very charismatic or um, ex you know, ex uh, expressed or displayed great feats of strength that gave us a sense of wonder, then we said, okay, that's somebody I'll trust to follow. And so there's, um, you know, sort of very practical elements that we can see why it is that we would um, want to experience wonder and the benefits. Um, but one of the points that I try to make in the book is that just because we can observe wonder doesn't mean that it takes away its magic. And I think that there is still a lot of magic that we can experience. And um, the goal that I have is that people don't believe that simply because there are elements that we can study, the science elements of it, that we don't lose the soul. Because there are still um, lots of inexplicable things. And in that is the magic, is the wonder. Um, and I think that at the end, that's really one of the points that I try to make that, uh, that if there's nothing that anyone takes from this book, the one thing that I would hope they take is that there is more untapped and unseen um, that we simply don't understand. And the notion of being bored or of figure, having it figured all out is, is nonsensical because there's still so much we don't understand about ourselves, about our world that can give us a sense of wonder. And so part of the challenge is that we're losing that because our, especially as we grow older, we believe we have it all figured out. Um, and in that, then we sometimes shut ourselves down from seeing the wonder that exists. Yeah, it's, it's um, interesting that you use the word inexplicable. I was thinking, when have I felt wonder? And it occurred to me a few years ago, I went with my daughter to Easter Island. I don't know if you've been down there. In the, I have not. Uh, it's near where you fly from Chile. It's part of Chile. But it's a remarkable place because of these strange monuments. No one can quite figure out how they got there. I'm sure everyone's familiar with the monuments. Um, and uh, as you say, my wonder there was how inexplicable it is. I guess it's the same sort of wonder. Uh, I know you live part of your life in uh, in the UK. It's the same sort of experience I'm guessing one would have if they visited Stonehenge. I was going to say the same thing. I, I felt that same inexplicable sense of wonder in Stonehenge or in Mexico at Chichen Itza and mm. some of those. And then, and then what I find interesting about that is what is it that's bringing us that sense of wonder? For some, it's the natural environment that it's just the sheer size um, or the unique quality of that environment. But some of it then for me, I, and I think I'm hearing some of that from you as well, is again, that cognitive element, trying to understand who are the people that were here? How did they? How did they create this? How did they put these um, these giant, you know, uh, pieces of rock together? How did it end up here? Why? And the whole question of why. And so I, I think that it's one of the elements that I love about wonder is that we can all look at something through a different lens and yet still have the same feeling taken from it. But it doesn't mean that we're all seeing it in the same way. Yeah, and of course, um, you spend part of your life in Europe. 
seems to me that the the design of the great cathedrals of Europe, the great the massive cathedrals, particularly in northern Europe, were designed to create a sense of wonder, um, which is the foundations of Western Christianity, particularly Roman Catholicism. Some people might say that this design of creating wonder um, suggests our own powerlessness. What's your reading of the role of wonder in Western Christianity? Well, I think it um, exists in any religion. Um, I Certainly, uh, Western Christianity is probably one that we're most familiar with. But if you look at um, many religious um, tenets and stories are infused with this sense of wonder. Um, I use the example in the book of Krishna um, and the description of, um, of Krishna and Arjuna and, um, and how uh, in order to influence Arjuna into giving up his life and the life of his men in pursuit of, um, of, of a good fight for Krishna ends up experiencing something that sounds like um, uh, something out of a very heavy 1960s trip, frankly, or perhaps a, a lively Hieronymus Bosch painting. But um, And he describes the wonder. And so I think that we see it infused in the, in the scripture of different um, religions, but then absolutely the environments in which we ask people to worship um, trigger the same kind of reaction. And what is it that's happening? We see that they create these spaces that make us feel small. And that's really the key component to feeling a sense of wonder is that we feel like a smaller component part of a larger system. And so there was an interesting piece of research done um, that uh, that focused around the Odekirk in, um, in Amsterdam, which is now um, no longer used as a place of worship. But at the time it was, it was where Rembrandt baptized all of his children. Um, and it is an, a stunning environment. And they did a piece of research where they had people go in, look at the space and then come out and, um, uh, and, and fill out a, a survey. And what they found was that people before they went in, um, felt a more, uh, I guess, natural sense of perspective to the size of the building. And then when they came out after having been inside it, they felt smaller and not just smaller in, in um, perspective to the building, but smaller in perspective to the world. They actually thought that the distance between them and other cities was farther, um, the distance between them and planets. And so what they found is that those types of spaces do help elicit wonder and make us feel smaller. And that's really the component, that's the key component piece to um, to feeling a greater sense of wonder is that we feel like a smaller piece of a bigger system. Yeah, it's ironic in the, the pre-Copernican world, on the one hand, everyone assumed we were the center of the universe and that the universe revolved around us. On the other hand, uh, people looked up into the stars and, and felt wonder at nature and the power of nature. What's the relationship, I know this is a, a broad question, between the power of wonder and the power of sci science. Are they antithetical? Can uh, one be wondrous and a scientist? I know some scientists, for example, uh, astronomers, for example, remain deeply religious. I guess when you look at the universe you through one of these new telescopes, you do have a, a profound sense of wonder. I absolutely do not believe that they're anti-ethical, and I really want to try to make that point. And in fact, I use descriptions, I use examples of people like Darwin, who was very religious and yet was really pilloried for his um, uh, his study into um, 
into evolution. Um, uh, one of the most beautiful uh, quotes around wonder by Einstein that says anyone who can't hold the world wrapped in wonder, they, they're as good as dead. Um, uh, they're blind, they're as good. As, and so I think that this idea that wonder and science can't coexist is, um, is just simply wrong. There are, and it, especially if you start looking at some of the research, there's a chapter in the book around psychedelics. And there are a lot of um, psychedelic these days i've got friends particularly in europe who are building businesses around psychedelics of legal psychedelics of one kind or another yeah and i think and i mean the, again um I, i'm sure you'll tease me about it but the evidence on that is very powerful it's very compelling about the benefits of that in particular to people who have um existential depression so people who have terminal illnesses and the like that their their last few um, months or years on the planet are robbed because they're so um uh, fixated on um, how little time they have left and that this releases them from um, that, that pain, that fear. Um, and what these scientists say is that um, if we want to allow it to maintain some spirituality, then simply say, isn't it amazing that we have a God or a higher power that has created our brains such that we can experience these things that give us such a sense of wonder? Or if you want to take God completely out of it, um, then you can say, isn't it incredible that the science allows us to experience these things? And I think the, one of the points that I do try to make in the book is that um, that what I find fascinating about wonder is that it can sit alone in a very secular way, or it can knit very seamlessly into any kind of religious or spiritual practice. It really can merge both the science and the soul. But one of the points that I also try to make is that if we think that how we perceived, you use the example of a telescope, you know, before we had the first telescope. Our assumptions about um, about the the solar system were, to some degree, a matter of faith. Yes, we could look at the math, and there was, a, and, and a lot of the assumptions that were made, um, the theories that were put forward, ended up being true. But it was a matter of faith, and in the end, then we had the telescope, and we could could prove it. I guess I like to describe wonder perhaps as our psychoscope in a sense that maybe there are things that we experience now that we can't yet prove. It doesn't make them any less true. And today we hold them as a matter of faith, but then in the future um, we may be able to prove them. And that doesn't make it any less magical. To me, that's still, there's magic in the fact that we can prove things like that at some point further in the future. Uh, the German sociologist Max Weber described his age as the one of disenchantment, a post-God age. Nietzsche wrote about it, many others as well. Um, can one have a, a sense of wonder in our age of disenchantment? I guess that's the core of your book. Um, you're trying to um, combine the two. But do you think that the, the 2020s are less wondrous generally than the 1920s or the 1820s or the 1720s? Or does each age um, find its own spheres of, uh, of, of wonder? So I'll say through, it's interesting you mentioned Weber because that is, again, uh, in, in the book, I talk about his um, bringing of the, the religious concept of charisma 
into the secular world and, and certainly um, in some ways almost into the corporate sphere. Charisma, an incredible wonder bringer. Um, and, uh, and, and charisma being an element that is a social wonder bringer that, uh, that creates a degree of, of plasticity and malleability in our brains that um, can, and in that, that plasticity and that malleability can be implanted really exciting, great ideas, but also some pretty crappy ones as well. You mentioned chat GPT, the dark sides. That's the dark side of wonder is when a charismatic leader actually then uses that charisma to implant really terrible ideas. It's how we end up with cults. It's how we end up with certain cult of personality leaders. Um, but to your question of whether the this period, do we believe that it's um, less wondrous? I don't believe that it is, but I do think one of the challenges that we did not have in years past is that it is so it was easier to be bored um, in years past. Now, rather than even having a moment of boredom, even the veritable expression of boredom, which is to twiddle one's thumbs. We don't twiddle our thumbs anymore. It's almost anachronistic. We we use them quite deftly to, to click and scroll, right? So I think one of the challenges is how we find wonder is being present in an environment, allowing ourselves to, be, um, to not be distracted, to pare back distractions, and to focus on what we see in our environment. And if we don't allow ourselves to be bored, if we don't allow ourselves to daydream, then it becomes very difficult to fall down the rabbit hole of absorption and then eventually land into this place of the wow and woe of awe. Um, and so I think that the things that keep us, that separate us from our wonder are an, an education system that focuses very, very heavily on, um, uh, on the single right answer, on students using learning the single right answer and having to regurgitate that and be judged on that. Um, the systematic um, structure of education um, and the almost competitive nature of that, I think that that takes a lot of wonder out and it really takes the ability for teachers to use wonder as a teaching mechanism because they're having to teach to these standardized tests. Um, then the next thing that I think takes away a little bit of wonder is, um, is our, uh, is the challenge of technology and that technology really drives us towards surface um, curiosity. So just hopping very surface, like along the top of ideas rather than going quite deep. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it's the Google. I know you gave a, a Google speech uh, this week, but it's, it's Google. We can blame it all on, or maybe not only Google, but certainly that. I use that as an example. Absolutely. That surface curiosity is a Google search to settle a bet, as opposed to deep curiosity being epistemic curiosity, the curiosity for curiosity's sake, the desire simply to learn more, the desire to know. And that's even one scientist's description of, of um, curiosity is just the desire to know. It's um, interesting, um, Monica, that you bring up thumbs and, and technology. We've done many shows about what many of my guests have described as our, our new age of anxiety, particularly of younger people who have grown up with social media, grown up with their thumbs and Google and, 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 and online technology. Um, do you think that um, do you think that uh, this anxiety that seems to have afflicted so many young people these days, older people as well, but particularly young people, is that bound up? with the disappearance of wonder if 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 they could be more wondrous if the power of wonder 
uh, if they could recognize, realize, see the power of wonder, then perhaps would that address this this anxiety that has afflicted so many people these days? I believe that it would, and um, and I do believe that the the research supports that. Um, there is some incredible uh, research that's been done around um, around wonder and its ability to decrease the um, the effects of PTSD. Um, we know that when we um, are able to hold mixed emotions in our mind, one of the challenges also is that um, the, almost the new thought movement. Um, abundance theory, so much of the self-help movement drives us towards happiness. And we believe that happiness should be the goal. And then when we don't find happiness, we are upset about it. We feel guilty because we think I have so much I should be happy about, but I'm not. Um, and so that strive, that striving for happiness, I believe is part of what causes us so much anxiety rather. And part of that is because uh, happiness is, a, is, solely positively valence. But the reality is, is we can't always seek just positive valence. We can't be happy when there's necessarily when there's COVID going on. We can't necessarily be happy when we're looking at what's happening at a war um, in Ukraine, but we can be in wonder. And the reason that that can help us with our anxiety is because what we know from the research is that Emotions that are duly valenced, meaning that we see both the positive and the negative at the same time, that challenges our schema in such a way that it actually reduces our anxiety. It makes us more resilient. There was a piece of research done that showed that um, widows and widowers, when they reflected back on their um, deceased partner, if they remembered both the positive and negative elements of that relationship, they were able to withstand their grief more effectively. And so what we know is that when we hold multivalenced or duly valenced emotions in our brain at the same time, that that's very, very positive for our resiliency. And I think that that's one of the challenges is we're pushing people to be happy, happy, happy all the time. And that's just not realistic. It's not a steady state. And so, yes, I think more wonder would help us um, decrease our sense of anxiety. It also is a pro-social emotion, which means it makes us want to be better people. It makes us want to be more tolerant. Um, and in that, in that tolerance, in that humility, it helps us build better relationships. No, I heard me. I, yeah, now you're beginning. I'm, I'm not convinced of this. It's, you don't have to be. The, the science well, the is there. I'm so confident. Now you're falling back on the old, you can have everything. You can be wondrous and you can be successful and you can be even happy, although the happiness isn't isn't concrete. I wonder, um, we did a show last week um, with uh, a, a voyeur, someone who's written a book about mindfulness and yoga. And we asked whether or not my ideas like mindfulness and yoga are the luxuries of a privileged class. Your your new book, The Power of One, there is a, is a Wall Street Journal uh, bestseller. I'm guessing most of the people who have bought the book are reasonably prosperous and privileged. Is wonder itself um, a conceit of the privileged class or is it a democratic thing? Uh, it can wonder? be democratic. And I actually make this point in the book um, that it is not democratic if someone, one of the challenges is if we're rushed, then we fall too easily into our um, into our shortcuts, our mental shortcuts, and we will skip over wonder. And so if you are working two jobs, um, if you're not getting enough sleep, sleep is one of the key underpinnings to being able to experience wonder. Um, some of the things that help us build a wonder practice, like meditation, if we don't have time to do that, 
Absolutely. And so we do run the risk of, um, of wonder being something that's only accessible to people when, um, when they have the mental and environmental space in order to do that. And so I actually try to make that point in the book that we can't allow wonder to be yet another thing that is just the bastion of, um, of the wealthy or of the privileged, because I do see a lot of the wellness movement being um, for those that have the time and the money. And I think some of the point that I want to make is that that's one of the challenges with the happiness movement as well, is that um, it focuses so much on elements of hedonic happiness that are about consumerism that we've almost completely linked our sense of what um, is happiness with consumerism, even if what we're consuming isn't necessarily physical. Um, it, maybe it's not, you know, maybe someone has evolved that it's not the new Louboutin shoes, but it might be the yoga class. It might be the retreat. And one of the things that I want people to recognize is that we can and in fact should seek um, wonder in the quotidian, that it does not need to be something that is inaccessible to people, that it can be something that we find very simply in our lives, but it we cannot find it if we have environments where um, people are overworked, um, where they don't feel valued, where they're not given the time um, and the ability to have proper sleep, and if their healthcare needs are not met. And so I believe that it it can, we do run Does the risk. Does that mean the people in Denmark, where all those things are supposedly realized, are happier than people in the United States? In, uh, well, I guess happiness is not your, your metric. Uh, is there a, a, a wonderment metric? Has anyone gone around the world figuring out which countries are, are more, not wonderful, but full of wonder than others? So there is some research around awe, which is the final element of um, wonder. What we do know is that awe is universal. It is felt all over the world. What we know is that the tone of awe is a little bit different. The tone of awe in America tends to be very singular and individual. It tends to be very high arousal state. Um, so it is that big wow, um, which is not surprising because Americans are very enthusiastic people. And we do tend to be more um, individual and focus on the the goals of the individual, um, whereas in um, uh, in Latin countries and um, the more global South, and also in um, Eastern countries, we tend to see a, um, a a greater sense of collective awe. But also, what's interesting is those places have more of the tinge of the original sort of. Um, uh, we talked earlier about words, sort of the etymological um, basis of all, which was a combined um, sense of uh, that wonder, but also the fear, the fear and trembling that we sense from awe. And that seems to be the, the fear and the negative part of awe seems to have been completely pushed out by Western nations, but it still seems to be held um, by these more collectivist societies. And Personally, I think it's to our detriment that we push out um, the the fear because in that, that's the way that we're able to find a sense of wonder during difficult times. And that's where the true benefit of the resiliency occurs. So yes, I would say that the that Western nations tend to be have sort of um, pushed the fear element out. And I think that that's probably to our detriment. Uh, Monica Marx, of course, famously described religion as a kind of opium. Is wonder an opium too? Once uh, I know you talk in your book about psychedelics, but once you experience wonder, do you 
lust after it? Is it an addictive quality? I don't think it's an addictive quality. I think it can become habitual in a positive way in the sense that we um, that we continue to uh, become more open to it, more curious, more desirous of finding it. Um, but the reality is that the benefits of wonder actually um, uh, make us um, our ego drops because of it. And so the idea of, um, of addiction, it actually is contrary to addiction. Um, wonder is used as a treatment for addiction. It's one of the ways that, um, that psychedelics are being used and, and yeah, very ways it wakes us up. Uh, f f finally, um, your day job is as, um, someone who enables people at work to dream bigger. You're a consultant, a company called Hatch. Uh, Hatch, we believe in inspiring positive action to make work life better. Um, can wonder be brought to the workspace? It's such a mundane experience. We had a sociologist from UC Berkeley on last year who talked about the way in which companies like Google and Facebook have transformed work into a new kind of religion which is in, in a way i guess encouraging for people who like that kind of thing but for others it's rather worrying uh, what do you suggest um wearing your your expertise on on work and the new work environment H how do we introduce wonder into the work world uh without turning companies like google into new churches so I get very worried when we talk about work as new churches, because I don't, um, again, that goes back to the idea of charisma and what's being implanted. I mean, we don't have to look too far to certain other tech leaders who, um, Dave Eggers has written two books. A lot of people have written a lot of books about the danger of these kind of companies. Yeah. And so I think that that cult of personality isn't particularly helpful, but absolutely. The reason I started Hatch is directly aligned with the reason that I wrote this book, which is that people, um, work sucks for a lot of people. I mean, most people are miserable in their jobs. And I believe that if we can make work life better than we make the world better, I really do believe with better work comes a better world. Most people don't have a choice. They have to work. Um, but what we can do is we find that in um, if we bring wonder into work, that we see that it creates better work cultures. So we have leaders who are more humble, they're more ethical, they're better listeners. Um, we know that uh, wonder in work, uh, that if people who are higher in these wonder components are, um, are more tolerant, they're more open to um, inclusion. So they bring people who are different from themselves in and also the physical built environment. And that is one thing that the Googles of the world have done well. It gives you a sense of, oh, wow. And when you have that sense, then you, again, get the benefit. So I think that it can be knitted into work. Uh, I just don't want to see it knitted in through the charisma of a cult of personality leader.